It's Easter. But really, the reason why it's my favorite is because we celebrate a day that Jesus rose from the dead. And, uh, you know, a lot of religions out there, uh, I'm going to go ahead and switch. Got that? Got it? Sorry about that, everybody. So uh, a lot of the religions celebrate a prophet, a teacher, a value system. But Christianity, why is Christianity so different in, in that Christianity... One, two. Great. Okay, until we get the other one. But, you know, Christianity is different in that we, we, don't, we don't really follow a, a teacher or a value system, but Christianity is all about an event. And the event is the resurrection of Jesus. And today that's what we celebrate. And that's what basically empowered everything that Jesus said, everything that He did, Everything, it backed it up that this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God because of the resurrection. And today that's what we celebrate, what happened 2,000 years ago. And that's why we celebrate Easter. And everything that we do as Christians hinges on that event of the resurrection. And it gives us great hope. And and one of the things that, that... we as as Christians, we don't we don't revolve our faith around, you know, necessarily, although we do have a teaching or a teacher. But this event is so significant for our faith. It teaches us that God believes in us. And because he rose from the dead, it validates Jesus like nobody else in the history of humanity as a teacher who came from God, that he claimed he was who he claimed to be. And that's why Easter is so big for us. And, you know, one of the things about our church is we don't want to make it once a year type of thing, although we elevate today. We don't want it to be a once a year thing, but something that we celebrate all the time. And if you're visiting here with us today, I want to welcome you. And I'm not sure where you stand on on Easter. And, you know, it is a to-do thing. If, If you have any association with people of religion or if your family, you've got some kind of person who goes to church in your family, they say, well, let's go to church. It's Easter, right? You're supposed to go. And I'm not sure where your faith today is going to be a great day for you because we're going to talk about an incredible story that was the backstory of the resurrection. And, you know, the title of today's lesson is How Nick and Joe Saved Easter. Now, we've got a couple of Nicks and Joes in the audience, but we're, we're not talking about them. We're, we're talking, and I remember I brought this up, you know, to my wife, and she goes, that's a really awkward title for Easter. And I get that. It's supposed to build a little tension. Uh, somebody in the children's ministry, I said, I can't wait to hear what this is all about. You know, Nick and Joe, who are Nick and Joe? We'll get there. But today we're going to look at the backstory of Easter. And a backstory is a background narrative that supports the primary narrative, the primary story. And every story that's told has a backstory behind it. And that backstory basically supports everything. And the primary narrative of Easter, and, you know, I, for many, many years I've, I've taught on Easter and I've talked about this primary, and it is, it is the message. But what's so incredible today that we're going to look at is there's a, there's a, there's a, a backstory 
that always backstories support the front story. And it's really going to minister to us and where many of us are in our faith. And we're going to talk about Nick and Joe. And this, this uh, primary narrative of Easter is right here. Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians 15. It's up on the screen. Verse 3 through 5. It says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. He goes on to share. In verse 6 through 8, after that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Imagine a meeting like this and Jesus shows up. And all of us go out and say, we saw Jesus today in church or in our meeting. What a message that would be. That's what happened. That's what Paul is saying. And he goes on to say, he saw 500 brothers at the same time, most of them who were still living. Though some have fallen asleep, which means they had passed on and died. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And then last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Paul was the last one to give his testimony. But see, Christianity is not based on a story, a fairy tale. Christianity is based on just like every history that we study in books and in, in, in the history. It's about witnesses, people who were there, people who saw, people who were alive, people who could give testimony, places, times, events, situations. And that's what Paul's saying here. We don't believe a fairy tale. There were witnesses. There were people. And even today... We can witness some incredible things that God can do that backs up the resurrection of Jesus. This is the primary narrative, but today we're going to look at the backstory. And I hope you're excited about Nick and Joe. Thanks to Nick and Joe, generations and generations have had the confirmation that Jesus actually died and rose from the dead. Without Nick and Joe, Jesus would have risen from the dead in a mass grave. In other words, in a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. And this place was called the Valley of Gehenna. And it was a terrible place where they, basically it was a mass grave, it was a garbage dump, where all the Roman criminals who were crucified, they would let their, their bodies hang on the cross for days at time and then peel their bodies off after they'd been dead. And, and the whole idea of a crucifixion is we want everyone to know you don't mess with Rome. You do not cross Rome. And so there was a very strong message. Don't cross Rome. Don't break Roman laws. And so when they take the bodies down from the cross, they would put the bodies on a cart, carry that cart all the way to the Valley of Gehenna, just outside of Jerusalem. And this word Gehenna was a terrible place. In fact, they kept the, the fire burning there in the Valley of Gehenna Day and night, a continual burning trash dump. It had an awful smell. It was a terrible place. The, Romans, the Roman authorities would not allow anyone to take a body and celebrate a funeral to honor the dead. Basically, what they wanted to say to someone who was crucified, we want to forget that they ever existed. And because of Nick and Joe, that didn't happen to the body of Jesus. It's an incredible story that we're going to look at today. 
And so Nick and Joel weren't your typical heroes, as we're going to see. They weren't your normal guys that stand up and had all this great courage. Their beginnings were very humble. In fact, they didn't have very strong faith in the beginning. They were what we're going to call today secret closet Christians. Got any uh, secret closet Christians in the house today? You don't have to raise your hand. Please don't. What does that mean? You have a belief system, but nobody around you knows that you have it. In fact, when it comes to coming out about your faith, coming out about your position in the faith, you don't want anyone to know. And that's what Nick and Joe were doing. And they were the secret believers, undercover believers. And one of the things that we need to understand about history is nobody anticipated the resurrection. They weren't expecting it. It wasn't like, you know, Sunday morning when the sun was about to come off. You know, they didn't have a sunrise service when this day happened. In fact, nobody thought that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. They, they thought it was over. In fact, the women, Mary and, and Martha, they came with, 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 with uh, spices and anointing oils to, to basically pour it on Jesus' body again. They had no idea that this was going to happen. And there was no special countdown, you know, on, on Easter morning. Five, four, with me, say it with me. Three, two, they, they, they didn't do that. They didn't do that. In fact, it was a very dark time. Where were the apostles? They were in hiding. They were running for their lives. They were afraid of what would now happen to them because they were associated with a, quote, criminal of Rome, an enemy of Rome. Even Nick and Joe, when they buried Jesus, thought it was over. And so they weren't our typical Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, we're going to get a little history because this is who Joe and Nick were. They were associated with this group called the Pharisees. And who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were like the professional holy people. They were the professional holy rollers. Okay? They would go to church all the time. Their full-time job, if you walked up to a Pharisee and say, hey, what do you do for a living? You know what they would say? I do being good. That's what I do. I'm all about being good. In fact, you want to see it? I got all these tassels how much I pray, how much I sacrifice. They were all about being good. 630 laws. They were very hard working at keeping all those laws. They knew the Bible inside and out. And they were basically the rule keepers of the Jewish belief system. They went around and checked everybody out. In fact, when Jesus came on the scene, they took it upon themselves. We got to call Jesus into account to make sure he's doing things by the book. And the book was a lot thicker than the book we have. In fact, they added on so much, it was like three times the size of a normal Bible with all their traditions and all their rules. They extended it. A lot of man-made rules. And these Pharisees, they couldn't stand Jesus. They were annoyed with Jesus because Jesus never followed their rules. In fact, Jesus embarrassed them in public. He would confront them. He would question, what's the motivation behind what you do, you Pharisees? In fact, he went as far as to call them snakes. Wow. 
Uh, when's the last time you were called a snake? You know, th- those are fighting words. That's serious. Call someone a brood of viper. That's strong talk. And, and so they were very upset with Jesus. And they were also upset with Jesus, and they didn't like Jesus because the people loved Jesus. In fact, the crowds would flock to Jesus, and they would stand by Jesus over here with Jesus' crowd, and they would smirk at the Pharisees and say, we're with him. We're not with you. You guys got too many rules. In fact, you don't even allow us to do right before God. You're pushing us away from God. Jesus is trying to bring us close to God. And so they hated Jesus for that. It became a popularity contest, and it became a war on politics. And so, but within the Pharisees, within the Pharisees, there formed a subgroup. They weren't all bad, because there were some guys in amongst the Pharisees that had a heart for God. And they really believed in God and His Word. And so this small group of Pharisees, they had questions about Jesus. Because it was undeniable. It was something so amazing. And, and they, would, they would sit in their subgroup and they would discuss. And the two guys that were in that subgroup was... Nicodemus, Nick, that's where we get Nick, Nicodemus, and Joseph of Arimathea. And they were in this subgroup, this this undercover Christian group. And they would talk amongst themselves and they'd say, you know what, guys? And they would do it in secret. You know what, guys? It's it's undeniable. I mean, how can you explain what Jesus is teaching? It's it's gotta be from God. And what, what he's what he's doing, these miracles that he's doing, you, you can't deny that. It's he's gotta be from God. But they kept it very quiet because they were afraid. And so they kept their secret faith in the closet. Under wraps. No one knew except them amongst their group. And that's who they were. And they watched and they listened. And they witnessed the miracles all the time, questioning their faith. Is Jesus from God? Is Jesus the one? And maybe, 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 maybe Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe He's the one. Maybe He's the one that came from God. And they had a lot of questions. Many, 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 many questions. But they had one big question. And that same big question that they had, you and I have. Or you and I eventually will have. And so they came together and, you know, they said that they were dying with the questions. They said, somebody's got, in their little subgroup, they had a meeting. And they said, somebody's got to go and talk to Jesus. Somebody's got to go there for us and find out what this is all about. Find out and ask him many questions, but ask him the one question. That one question. So, you know, maybe Nicodemus lost the bet. Maybe they drew straws, but he got chosen. He got chosen to go and ask Jesus the questions. And the one question that they wanted to know is what everyone wants to know, including you today. At one point or another in your life, you want to know the answer to this question. And that's what they did. And we pick this up in John chapter 3, verse 1. So he, he's, he's picked, right? He's, here's Nick. Here's Nick. Nicodemus, he's picked out of the subgroup. And so when does he go to Jesus? At night. Some of you know the story. In verse 1 it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees. He's in the group. And the haters. Okay, they were like the the Darth Vaders of of the Bible, the New Testament. The Klingons. 
But this guy really, he really believed. And he goes, he was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. So in other words, he's high up. He wasn't just one of the scrubs, you know. He wasn't one of the guys that, you know, kind of was in the background. He was one of the ones he, people knew about him. And he was a member of the ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. In fact, they probably talked about it in their subgroup, and they said, listen, if you get caught, we don't even know you. We're going to deny any of these meetings. You're on your own if you get caught. So he's sneaking around, and he's trying to find out where Jesus is, and he goes to Jesus at night, and he said this, Rabbi. So even a Pharisee, he had respect for Jesus because he calls him a rabbi, which means in the Jewish language, teacher. So he, he asks him, he says, we, now that's a key word there. He's not just asking for himself. He comes out and he says, I represent a group. It's a small group of us, members of the Pharisees, and we got questions. And here's our position as a group, as a subgroup, at the undercover believers. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. So where's where's his faith? Where is their faith, their subgroup? They, they believed. They had a secret faith that Jesus was from God. And then there was the big question is, is he the Messiah? Is he the one? And so, you know, he's gearing up. He's getting ready, right? He's, okay, I'm, he, and this is his, this is his pre-narrative. This is his opening line, his prelude. He's, he's esteeming Jesus. But then what we're going to see is Jesus did that weird Jesus thing. Okay, that he always did that. Before Nicodemus could even get the question out, Jesus did that weird Jesus thing, right? He answers the question before he can get it out of his mouth. And this is what he says in verse 3. And, and the amazing thing is, if somebody were to answer your question before you asked it, like basically to read your mind, wouldn't you pay a little bit more attention to what they were saying? Wouldn't you take them seriously? I mean, they, they go into your brain. And they're like, I already know what you're going to ask me. And this is what he asked. This is what Jesus said to him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. In other words, I'm not lying here. Let me, let me break it down for you. Let me shoot straight with you. Let me lay it down. I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless... He is born again. Now, what do you think Nicodemus is feeling at this point? He's the best of the best. He's one of the religious elite. And Jesus spells it out. What, what was the big question? What's the one question? Am I in a right standing with God? That's what everybody wants to know. That is the question. And Jesus answered it before he could ask it. Because Jesus knew. He knows people's hearts. He knows what your heart is. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're feeling. Those things that you won't come out and say, but you're thinking it and you're feeling it in your heart. He knows. Everybody wants to know at one point or another in their life, this question. How do I know that I'm in a right standing with God? How do I know that when I die, there's something good that's going to happen to me? And Jesus answers that question. You can't see. You can't be right with God, 
make it to the other side, make it to heaven, unless what? Unless you're born again. Unless there is a significant change in your life. There's got to be some turning point. And look at what Nicodemus says after that. Okay, and he gives a really sarcastic reply. I've got more questions. But it gives a sarcastic reply. And he says, how can a man be born when he's old? And he gets gross on him and says, Nicodemus asks, surely a man cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? And that's, you don't even want to think about that. It's like, mm. you know, I don't want to think about that. But he's being sarcastic with Jesus here. Because he thinks he's good enough. He's going back and forth with Jesus a little bit here. Do you not realize who I am? Do you not realize how much I pray? Do you not realize how hard we work at behaving the way God wants us to behave? And Jesus tells him again in verse 4 and 5. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is what? Born of water and the Spirit. And what Jesus is referring to here is what we just witnessed today. See, even before Jesus started his ministry, John the Baptist was on the scene. And what was he doing? He was preaching and teaching a rebirth, a baptism of what? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people would come to John the Baptist and they would, and they would say, I want to change my life. I want to give everything over. I want to do what God's will is. And he would baptize them and they would receive the forgiveness of all their sins. But Jesus brought in something new. He brought in a new baptism. A baptism that you would not only get your sins forgiven, but you would receive a part of God in your life. He would reside in you through the Spirit. It's called the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Acts 2.38 talks about that. That when you're baptized... And so that's what he's telling him. There has to be a regeneration. There has to be a, a do-over, a change in your life. And baptism and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say in verse 6 and 7, flesh gives birth to flesh. We're not talking about a, a human change. We're not talking about something you do effort in, in doing. This is a spiritual rebirth. But, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. I mean, imagine how Nicodemus is feeling at this point. And then he, and then he says in verse 9, Nicodemus asks him, so how, how can this work? How does this work? Spiritual rebirth, baptism. What are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus said to him, you're Israel's teacher. You're a minister. You're, you're somebody who knows the Bible. And you don't understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify of what we've seen, but you people do not accept our testimony. So he's challenging his faith. He's challenging his humility, which all of us at some point or another need that challenge. Because we want to get, you know, argumentative. We want to go back and forth with God. Well, what about this? What about that? Does that really have anything to do with it? Why are you delaying the most obvious thing? There's things in your life that are not pleasing to God. And he's saying, you've got to make these changes. And we speak of what we know, we testify of what we've seen, but you people still do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? In other words, Jesus could have gone to a whole other level and just left them in the dust. 
But he, he made it simple. And that's what I appreciate about Jesus. He kept things simple. He kept things clear. And then in verse 13, we see J- Jesus continue. No one has ever gone into heaven except this, the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. I mean, to resolve our conflict, what happens after you die? And this is probably what Nicodemus was saying. How do I know what's going to happen unless somebody comes from heaven? And so Jesus again resolves his conflict and says, I'm the one. I'm telling you right now where I came from. So you don't have to wonder what this is all about. I'm not speaking to you of you know, figurative things. I'm telling you, I came from there. I know what it means to cross over. I know what it means to get right with God. No other prophet, no other teacher brings us that vantage point except Jesus. And then he shares with him this, this really, really intense story of what happened to the people of Israel. Last spring we watched a movie, remember it? About the snake on the on the on the on the on the stand on the snake on the on the stick. And it comes from Numbers chapter twenty one. It's a really wild story. The people of Israel, they rebelled against God and they rebelled against Moses. And so God punished them and sent them snakes. There were snakes everywhere. But God always comes through. He sent a remedy. And Jesus talks about it. Just as Moses lifted up the snake, he told Moses to build a, a, and to put together a golden snake and lift it up in the desert. So just as that snake was lifted up in Numbers 29, and and, and Nicodemus got this because he knew his Bible really well. He understood this story. Just as as he lifted up the snake, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes, not working your way into getting right with God, but basically turning yourself over to God. Not depending on yourself to get there, but depending on God to get there. See, because how we change is not by human effort. It comes through believing. And that believing empowers us, transforms us into behaving differently. But see, the Pharisees, they had it the other way around. Anyone that believes in Him may have eternal life. And so after this encounter... Nicodemus goes home, and Jesus continues on his ministry. And his ministry is growing. His ministry actually is exploding because he's doing amazing miracles. His teaching is, 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 and people are coming from long distances. They hear about Jesus. They want to know about Jesus. And the relationship with the, the Pharisees and Jesus becomes more and more heated and intense because Jesus was confronting their hypocrisy. And all the while, their little subgroup is still there asking the question. Imagine Nicodemus tried to go back and explain all the things that Jesus talked to him about. Yeah, you know, he told me about the snake, and he told me about getting born again, and, and flesh, and all these other things. And imagine the other guys trying to say, I don't get that. I don't get that. But ministry, the Jesus ministry continues to grow. And so at this point in, in John chapter 7... They want to deal with Jesus. It's really intense. So they send their little bitty guard. They had a, a really small guard called the temple guard. You know, and they, got, they had a few, you know, weapons, like a few handguns. But it was just kind of a mockery, you know, just, just a, a small little 
little army. You know, it wasn't a big army. It was a small army. And so they send these guys to arrest Jesus. And so he goes into the courtyard, and there they are, and they're all gathered around, and they're listening to Jesus teaching in front of a big, huge crowd. And so they sit there, and they're going, okay, we gotta, guys, we've got to wait for an opportune time to arrest Jesus. So they said, you know, why don't we order lunch? So they, they get, call up and get some sandwiches or something, and they're sitting around. They're waiting, 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 and waiting, waiting, waiting. And meanwhile, the Pharisees are waiting, waiting, waiting. And time goes by, and then they show up at the temple. And look what the Pharisees said. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, So, where's Jesus? You were supposed to arrest him. What happened? We've been waiting all day for you guys. Why didn't you bring him? And this was their answer. <laughs> no one has ever spoke like this the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean you listened to his sermon? You idiots. You got sucked into that teaching of his. I can't believe this. You mean that he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. So, you know, they, they basically they insulted the guard because they said, you guys don't even know the scriptures. You're ignorant. He deceived you. He, he conned you. And, and sometimes we can look at Christianity the same way. You know, people that follow Jesus, they're kind of ignorant people. They're kind of simple people. But they didn't even realize amongst their own group, there's a subgroup of secret believers. Well-educated, very sophisticated, but they believed in Jesus also. So you need to erase that idea in your head that you think that people who believe in Jesus, that put their faith in God put their faith in, in the Bible, are kind of simple, ignorant. They'll believe anything. Gullible people. Which is what they were telling the guard. And look at what they say here. They go on to say, Has any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? And they're like, Shh, don't say anything, Joseph. Nick, don't you say a word. Keep quiet. And then the, the chief priest goes on and says, no, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Now, Nicodemus, he kind of leans in. And who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number asks, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? And this is bold. You've got to believe this is bold for Nicodemus to, to step in and make this statement. So his faith is, you know, it's coming out a little bit. But look what they say to him. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it. And you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Who needed to look into it? The Pharisees did. In fact, Nicodemus was calling for an investigation. What they were trying to do, they were investigating and see, they assumed that because Jesus grew up in Galilee, they assumed he was from there. Where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem. And what does the Bible, what did the Old Testament say that the Messiah would be born in what city? Bethlehem. So who really didn't do their homework and their investigating? The Pharisees didn't. And see, this is what we have to make sure that we don't think that people who follow Jesus are ignorant. 
In fact, if you think you're sophisticated and intelligent, if you'll do your homework and if you'll research this out, you're going to find there's more evidence to back up faith than there is to tear it down. I mean, how do you explain thousands of years of, of, of time and space and people all coming together to fit this puzzle together that Jesus is who he said he was? Prophecy. This is how it's going to happen. And see, that's what Nicodemus and his crew figured out and they were working on. And so the conflict intensifies. In the next chapter, in John chapter 8, Jesus defends a woman caught in adultery. This was intense. But he did confront her and said, you need to leave this life that you're living. He didn't just smooth it over. He said, you've got to repent. You've got to change. You've got to stop doing this. You're hurting God. But I'm not going to condemn you. Isn't that reassuring? Jesus didn't come here to condemn us. He came here to call us to change. And today that you're here with us, nobody's going to call you and, and judge you and say, you're going to such and such a place. We're saying, you've got to change. And you know you've got to change. It's time. You've done enough. And then he heals, in, in John chapter 8, he heals a man born blind. Who does that? Who heals a person? And then they brought the parents in. They had this whole investigation. It was a huge deal. It got really heated then because they threw the guy out of the temple and, and it created this big ruckus. And then in John chapter 11, one of Jesus' friends gets very sick. And Jesus delays his visit to heal him. And his friend dies. And this is probably the pinnacle. This is the, this is the time where everything got really, really intense, both with the Pharisees and with Jesus, because he performs one of his most powerful miracles of all. And he's doing something amazing. And Lazarus dies. His friend dies. And it seems like Jesus was irresponsible and didn't show up on time. So he arrives on the scene and Lazarus had already been dead and buried. They had the funeral. He'd been dead and in a tomb for four days. And it says here in John chapter 11, when Jesus showed up, he talks to Martha and he says to her, your brother will rise again. And she goes on to say, and Jesus continued to say to her, and this is what's powerful. Jesus is already predicting Easter. Jesus is already telling us this is what's going to happen. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. I mean, you know, what's our greatest dilemma as people, as human beings on this planet? Our greatest dilemma is that we're going to die. Our life's going to come to an end. I don't care how wealthy you are, how successful you are, how healthy you are. I don't care what you've done. You're going to die. And some of us may die in the prime of our life. What are you going to do about that? And see, that's why Easter is so, so incredible. Because it gives us comfort. But we've got to embrace this message. And he who believes in me, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I mean, he calls her out. He calls out her faith. And she says, Martha says, yes, Lord. She told him, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come in the world. What does that say about Martha's position? 
And then Jesus does the unthinkable. He, he, he walks up to the, to the crowd. They're, 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 they're mourning his death. They're crying. And Jesus walks up and looks straight at the tomb. And he says, open it up. They're like, what? Yeah, he says, roll back the stone. And then it, 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 is, it is like, it, it'll, give you, it'll give you tingles. He goes in and he says, Lazarus. He shouts out, Lazarus, come on out of there. And people don't know what to think. And I want you to imagine this. A mummy walks out of the tomb. I mean, talk about creature feature. I mean, he walks out. He's a dead man walking. And Jesus says, take that stuff off of him and clean him up because he's alive. I've brought him back. And then they start the party. Could you imagine? People are going crazy at this point. I mean, you want to talk about a following. What if you were there and you saw this happen? What would you say about Jesus? What would you think about Jesus? I mean, it would be intense. But what would you think the Pharisees were feeling at this point? I mean, you've got Jesus there and the Pharisees decided, okay, that's it. This has got to come to an end. It ends now. And they not only say they're going to kill Jesus, they're going to kill Lazarus too. They're going to wipe it all out. Because what they were afraid of, this thing is getting so out of control that the Roman, the Romans were going to crush their nation over this whole thing that Jesus was doing. Because it was, it was big. I mean, there were thousands of people. And so they began plotting and they began arranging. And I want you to remember, Nick and Joe are in all these meetings. And they're listening to the plots. They plotted to kill Jesus and Lazarus. And they're thinking, what is going on? I thought we were supposed to be holy people of God. And then they make a, a trade with, G, with Judas. And they say, Judas, we'll pay you money if you'll turn Jesus over to us. And it gets worse. They hire false witnesses to testify against Jesus. They pay people off. And so the guard was sent out again at night. And you can imagine the talk that they had. Okay, guys, listen. You blew it the last time. Do you think you can do it right this time? Do you think you can bring him back? I mean, come on. You're supposed to be a guard. And then they brought Jesus. They arrested him. They began their assault on him. And they, they had this mock trial before Pilate. And then Holy Week begins, Good Friday. Jesus is brought before Pilate. And they bring the witnesses up front and they, they start accusing Jesus of all these things and saying all these things. And Pilate looks at Jesus and says, Aren't you going to answer any of these accusations? And Jesus is silent. Pilate doesn't know what to think. Because he sees he's a smart guy. He's a governor. He knows what's happening. This is a power play. He could tell because the witnesses' testimony didn't agree with each other. All Jesus had to do was open his mouth and he would have walked free. But he kept silent. And Pilate was amazed. And all this was happening. And then 
They bring Jesus before the crowd, and Pilate thinks, Pilate says, I know what I'll do. I'll beat this man to one inch of his death, one inch of his life. I will beat him almost to death, and then I'll let him go. So he sends, he sends Jesus to be scourged, 40 lashes minus one, and we all now know what that looks like, thanks to Mel Gibson. It's an intense thing. Some people never survive just the scourging because of the loss of blood, because of, because of the, the hemorrhaging that would happen in people's bodies. And then they bring Jesus out before the crowd. And, G, and, and Pilate says, so what do you want me to do? Isn't this enough? And B, Jesus was barely recognizable at this point. Covered with blood, with a crown of thorns. Beaten in his face and blood pouring all over. And Pilate says, isn't this enough? Now I'm going to set him free. And then someone in the back yells out, crucify him. And the chants began, crucify, 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 crucify. And Pilate begins debating with the crowd. He says, what has he done? He's an innocent man. You crucify him. You take him. And you do this. They said, no, we can't. You have to do this. And so Pilate, because of his fear of the crowd, in an attempt to cleanse himself from guilt, he washes his hands and sends Jesus over to be crucified. And remember Nicodemus and Joseph and their subgroup, and they're watching this whole thing happen, and then Jesus is carrying the cross. He he's barely has the strength to walk, and he's carrying the cross down the Via Della Rosa, and, he's, and he's, he's barely making it, and they're watching, and Mary and Martha and Jesus' mother, they're all watching. The apostles are watching, and they can't believe it. Nicodemus and Joseph can't believe it. I can't believe this is happening. He's supposed to be the Son of God. He's supposed to be the One. And look what's happening. And they're standing back in the crowd. And then Jesus, they hear the nails. They hear, they hear the, the hammer and the nails. And Jesus is laid on the cross. And, it, and then they see from a distance Jesus' head erected on a plank. And then they see his arms coming up, and he's spread out on a cross. And then Nicodemus remembers what Jesus said that night. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And Nicodemus is awestruck. And then he remembers this verse in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5 that says the Messiah wasn't going to come and be this elaborate king. It says this, it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sin, for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was put upon him by his wounds. We are healed. We are all like sheep that have gone astray. Sound familiar? Each one of us has turned away to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquities of all of us. And Nicodemus and Joseph, they remember this verse and they go, Wow, we didn't realize 
This is what God is doing. The Old Testament talks about it hundreds of years ago. Isaiah talked about this happening, this very thing. And then Jesus dies. And Joseph does the unthinkable. In John chapter 19, verse 38, later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate, the same guy who had Jesus crucified for Jesus, he asked Pilate for Jesus' body. Now, you've got to understand, this is a huge coming out. You see, there was a way, if you paid enough money, if you paid the bribe, you could get a body that was going to be thrown into the Valley of Gehenna. You could bribe the authorities, but you would never go to Pilate. You'd go to the officer. You'd get to the, go to the guy who's, who's pulling the cart with all the bodies on it and says, I need that body. They, they said, you know what? Enough is enough. We're coming out of the closet. We are going to get open about this. This is enough. We believe in Jesus now. We see the prophecy. We understand. And now the sophisticated and the educated come out with their faith in Jesus. See, because they knew. They understood. Because of their research and what the Scriptures teach. And the obvious thing, Jesus was from God. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but in secret. Because he was afraid of the Jews. So was it really about the truth? Was it really about what's right? No. It was about fear of what other people think. But he came out of the closet. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. This is an incredible story of a fearless act. He was not afraid of the consequence. Went right to the governor and said, I want Jesus' body. Whatever it costs, I'll pay it. I want to ask you today, and this is where we break down the lesson. This is where it comes home Easter Sunday for you. Are you a closet Christian? If you are, here's some encouragement. Nicodemus and Joseph, Nick and Joe, were closet Christians. But they came out. They came out. And they made it obvious to all they took a great risk. They put their money on the line. And look what, look what, look what it says here in verse 39. He was accompanied by who? Nicodemus. The man who earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. That's a pretty big bag. That's jars of stuff. And what they did with all these, 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 these spices is they, they basically took Jesus' beaten, bloody body and washed him, cleansed him. And then they, they wrapped his body in all these spices, 75 pounds worth. It's estimated that it would have... Basically, if Jesus had been alive, it would have killed him, the embalming. That's how thorough the wrap, from head to toe, covered in aloes and in spices, and they wrapped them tight. So as to preserve the body, it was a Jewish 
ritual that basically they practice in order to honor someone, in order to, to, to lift them up. Taking Jesus' body, verse 40, the two of them wrapped, wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customers. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. In the garden, a new tomb, which had, no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Whose tomb was this? This was Joseph's own family tomb. See, because you had to be wealthy to have a tomb. A tomb of this size. And, and not only that, by taking Jesus' dead body and wrapping it and handling it, they couldn't celebrate the Passover that year. Basically, they took their whole system and said, you know what, this taking care of Jesus is more important than celebrating the Passover, which for a Jew, a Pharisee, was a big, big deal. He took his own tomb, his own family tomb, and he says, I'm going to put Jesus in my family tomb. And they laid Jesus there. And because of this act, and because of what they did, an amazing thing that happened is that generations of Christians, the first generation of Christians, came to believe because instead of Jesus being resurrected in a garbage dump amongst, you know, trash and other bodies, there was a place where Jesus was laid in a tomb. And that tomb was opened. And there was evidence of the resurrection. See, God used Nick and Joe to minister to our faith. See, when you come out of the closet, and here's the point. This is your takeaway for today. When you come out of the closet in your faith, and you take a stand for Jesus, instead of trying to fit in with the crowd and for fear of what people think, when you take that stand, guess what God does with you? He uses you. To build the faith of others. See, it made it clear that Jesus died. He was buried in a tomb. The tomb was sealed. And the following day, early in the morning, when Mary and Martha and the women showed up, the tomb was empty. Peter and John, Peter and John showed up. Peter and John show up on the scene and they give testimony the tomb is empty. This is, and this is what's amazing about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. That's how Nick and Joe saved Easter. They saved Easter because they came out about their faith. I want to encourage you today to deal with your lack of faith. Because, see, there are some of us here today that we've got one foot in this subgroup and we've got one foot in this other subgroup. And we're on the fence about things. You know, we want to please our friends. We want to please our co-workers. We want to please our classmates. We want to fit in just like Joseph and Nick did. We want acceptance. We're craving acceptance. And we don't want to take any hard stand. And so we'll use these, these narratives, these arguments about, well, I'm not sure, and what about the Bible? Do your research. Read this 
Read what the Bible talks about. Put it into practice and you will know. No man could read. This is not man-made. This book has changed my life and so many of our lives here today. But unless you take a stand, it will not work for you. That's what happened. That's how Nick and Joe saved Easter. So I hope today you can take a stand for your faith. Like they did. And it's understandable. Okay, it's time that you let it go. You don't need to feel ashamed, but you need to change. Today is the day. This Easter, 2012, can be your year to turn it all over. We're going to watch a video now before we take the communion. As a reminder, Jesus isn't dead. Jesus is alive. And He's alive in our lives.
Pray with me for the communion. God, thank you. On behalf of all of us, words can't express how grateful we are that you send your only son here on earth to die for us. Father, to teach us how to live, to suffer the, the beatings and the punishment that we deserved. God, we're so grateful that Jesus didn't stay in the grave, but today we can celebrate that he's alive. Thank you so much, God, that we can be forgiven of all the things that we've done that have offended you, that have hurt you and hurt other people around us, the people that we love. We've hurt them. God, we pray that you'll please forgive us. Thank you that Jesus poured out his blood for our new beginning. God, we are so thankful that death has lost and love has won. God, help us to be grateful today. God, help us to go out of here not living as secret Christians any longer, but to be bold and out with our faith and give you testimony of the great things that you've done in our lives. And, Father, empower us so that we can make the changes that we need to make in our lives. Father, I pray for you now to use this communion to give us a new beginning. Thank you that we can remember today Jesus' body and blood that was poured out for us. And I pray for our friends here today. God, that you will help them to deal with their doubts and to deal with the truth that no one has the answers besides you and your son. Father, thank you. Bless this communion. Bless this Easter. Bless the rest of this year, God. We pray as a church that you'll use us to help people in our communities to find hope. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. We honor him at this time, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.